Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Policy Agendas podcast, a podcast at the University of Texas at Austin by the Policy Agendas Project. I'm E.J. Fagan. Today, I'm joined by the new project manager of the Policy Agendas Project, Brooke Shannon. Hello. Thanks for having me. Brooke, uh, congratulations on your new, your newfound power and position. Thanks. Um, so far, it's been a peaceful transfer of power. So so far. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about uh, 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 something along those lines today with Ross Buchanan. Ross is a, a graduate uh, graduate research fellow with the Policy Agendas Project here at the University of Texas at Austin. He is ABD. He is on the market. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a, I love the project. I, I mean, I, I've, we've all seen Ross work on this project for years now, and, uh, and I am very excited to talk about it on the, po- on the podcast. The working title is Policy Responsiveness and Feedback with and Without Democracy. Uh, so, Ross, what, what, are you, what are you getting at with this project? What's the general overall re- research question? Um, so there, there are two real motivations for this project. I mean, the first was I wanted to really understand the aspect of the policymaking process that most affects people's lives. Uh, policy outcomes are the part of the process that most directly affects us all. And yet, ironically, it's the part of the policymaking process that we know the least about. So I wanted to know, I mean, to what extent does all this policy responsiveness we found actually yield outcomes that we that actually affect us? What is your definition of responsiveness? Um, so... Uh, uh, functionally, it's I mean it, it's the extent to which the public gets what it wants. Um, so I mean, what the government is actually doing is I mean certainly a huge part of that. But I mean, what the government does doesn't always succeed. So I mean, the the outcomes are a very important part of that. And how do you measure this? So th- this is uh, it's a big topic. It's a big abstract topic. It's been used. People have done some budget work. People have done um, you know some work on spe- on like specific survey questions. But you, how do you do it? Uh, so I'm looking specifically at uh, air pollution um, because it does give us uh, an objectively measurable outcome. Um, I, I think it is a representative um, uh, issue for other, uh, like other issues that have observable outcomes. Um, but yeah, I look at air pollution because it has an objectively measurable outcome. So what is the what 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 types of air pollution are we talking about? Um, so uh, in this paper, I look at uh, two specific air pollutants. There's a NO2, nitrogen dioxide, which is a really common um, it's a, a common component of smog. Like a, we've all seen it, we've all smelled it. And another one is a PM2.5, which are like tiny little particles that are uh, emitted by all sorts of processes, but they're they're really really harmful um, and a big problem in China. And so they come from what, like coal power plants or from you know uh, industrial processes. And- yeah, basically any combustion process will release these pollutants to some extent. Um, so and yeah, coal is a huge contributor. And, and when countries want to limit these these pollutants, what do they do? Um, so with PM2.5, I mean, which is the more harmful of the two, I mean, you can uh, I mean, filtration works. I mean, just uh, uh, also cleaner coal. I mean, if you just scrubbing the coal beforehand can uh, help to some extent. NO2 is harder to get rid of. I mean, you have to like, really reduce the amount of combustion processes you use overall. And um, how do you measure this? So, so we might we might measure this, you know, through you know, indirectly. But you got you have a kind of a cool cool method here. Um, so I use satellite data. Um, I mean, uh, so uh, local authorities around the world, China specifically, have a lot of incentive to cheat with uh, with local with the ground sensors that they have control over. So I use uh, satellite derived data from uh, the uh, NASA and the European Space Agency. Um, for these two air pollutants. So, you know, we know exactly, you know, with some measurement error, like exactly how much NO2, PM2.5 are in the air, which makes it different from like like a GDP study or something like that, where you can't, the, the official statistics in an authoritarian country might be 
might be suspect. Right. And and um, I mean, there is always going to be some measurement error, but I mean, there will be no bias to that error. I mean, there's no incentive for the European Space Agency to like, to, to lie about, you know, a, a Shanghai's air pollution level. All right. So I, I want to get to the individual studies here. So we have two papers that we're talking about today. One of these papers we'll, we'll put online in a link in the description um, in as a working paper in the uh, uh, in, in this episode. And I'm going to start with that one, which is policy responsiveness and feedback without democracy. Uh, so this, ta- this 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 paper uses the case of China, and um, your your argument is that is that the Chinese government is responding to public opinion, um, even if if it's different than in a democracy. Can you so can you explain how you 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 find that the Chinese government is responsive? Um, so uh, scholarship has already established that the Chinese government does to some extent do what the public wants to at least some of the time. I mean, what we didn't know is, like, did this actually matter? I mean, the, the responsiveness is an authoritarian regime. I mean, the, the responsiveness is very limited. Um, so we didn't really know, like, does this ar- actually aggregate into anything that actually affects people's lives? And so um, I have a, a policy measure um, in the form of the government reports. I have a public opinion measure in the form of uh, it's a, it's a salience measure of, um, uh, of the of internet searches through their, their main uh, search um, the main search engine, which is called Baidu. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so uh, there's this relationship between the government uh, action and what the public wants, and then I have the air pollution outcome, uh, which shows kind of like what happens when the government does what it does. And what happens? Um, the air pollution goes down. I mean, you have to control for things, most notably uh, economic output. Um, but when you control for that, um, the, then when the public becomes more concerned with air pollution, um, the air pollution level is lower than it would be otherwise. Yeah, so th- this is a podcast, and so I'm going to be, there's some audio here with me leafing through a uh, piece of paper, but I can't actually show, I think that's a very innovative way of presenting feedback results that Ross, Ross came up with here. Um, so you'll have to get the, download the paper to, to see it. Um, but it's, it's a full process you're modeling, right? So you, there's, there is a, a change in, 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 the, in air pollution. This causes a response in, in these surge indexes. Uh, that then um, cha- that translates into government policy, and that then translates into lower air pollution, which then in turn lowers both government policy and air indexes. So it's this it's this thermostatic model that you see in Flesian, you see in a lot of other places, um, but I think in 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 China. People are surprised about this, right? Yeah, so there is um, this is a, a dynamic process, and it is very similar to the, the thermostatic model. But there is one key difference here: is uh, in the thermostatic model, um, there's responsiveness, and then the public is reacting to what the government does. Um, in China, what I find is that the public doesn't really know directly what the government does. I mean, the, the political process is opaque, but it still does observe the outcome. So the public is reacting to the outcome here, not the, the government action itself. So yes, it is similar to the thermostatic model, but there is the key difference of the outcome or the, the feedback is coming from the outcome, not the government policy. And I think that's a good way to transition into, into your other paper, which is looking at the same the same phenomenon, but in the United States. Um, so how does the process differ in the United States? Um, so we know... Uh, um, uh, so at the, the national level, the, the big difference is, is that the political process is reasonably transparent. So the government, I mean, there is responsiveness and the public um, does react to what the government does because the public can generally see what the government's doing, at least in a kind of a very general way. At the local level, though, the government is not so transparent. I mean, it's, it's more difficult to see what the, the government is doing. I mean, the government's very fragmented at the local level. There's a lot less media coverage. There are lots of reasons for this. Um, but uh, So what I find is that in the U.S., the city level looks a little bit more like China. I mean, like there is responsiveness, and there are responsive outcomes, but the public uh, has difficulty responding to what the government's doing. Instead, it is reacting to the outcomes it can directly observe. 
All right. So I think that covers the, the paper, the, the two papers and the project overall pretty well. Uh, so, Brooke, we're going to transition to our second half of this podcast. And let's talk a little bit about this critically. Sure. So in authoritarian settings, as you say, um, the public is reacting, but not necessarily to government actions. They see physical outcomes because of the opaque nature of, of government action. They respond directly to those outcomes. So what exactly do you think that that means for the policy agenda, especially of authoritarian governments? Um, do you have a hunch on different policy areas? Or uh, like in general, what does it say about the policy agenda? Uh, so I, I think a huge implication of this um, is that the, the visibility of the policy area matters a lot for responsiveness. I'm only At the moment, I'm only looking at one area, and it's a very, very visible one. Uh, and certainly there are other vi- uh, visible um, policy areas. I mean, people can see construction projects by their home. I mean, they have some idea of, uh, how, res- of how, um, how good local schools are. But there are lots of areas that are not so visible. And so uh, I would expect that um, when the political process is opaque, um, that there's going to be a lot less responsiveness in those um, um, in these less visible areas. Right. I think air pollution is a really cool um, cool measure and a cool way to show policy um, responsiveness and government action because it's like the ultimate public good, right? It's like there is no part. There's no part of air pollution, I guess, that doesn't somehow affect everyone, right? You can't hide um, from it. Yeah. yeah, you can't hide from it. Everybody's got to breathe. And I think it's cool that you also speak to this sort of like classic agenda setting idea where like in 1971, this book on um, on the U.S. also comes out and it talks about government action and like outcomes and federalism and stuff like that. So I'm wondering, especially tapping into this agenda setting idea, how does government action in an authoritarian and a non-democratic area or even in a local area, in the local government area that isn't known for being incredibly transparent or incredibly um, consistent in terms of acting in a responsive way, how does that differ in, in these different types of governments? So I think this is, I mean, uh, this is a, a major question I'm hoping to kind of get to as, as my uh, work continues. Um, I suspect that there is uh, a difference in um, the consistency of the government's focus. I mean, the, the time period I'm looking at in, in, uh, in authoritarian China is I, it, it's pretty limited. But um, one thing I want to do over time is I want to lo- I want to expand that the time window um, to see uh, how consistent is this responsiveness over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's at least anecdotal evidence that there's that there are huge punctuations in Chinese responsiveness, maybe more than in the United States, although that the story may be determined. But that I mean, uh, so uh, like in the early 2000s, air pollution in China was terrible, but it was not on the public agenda. Um, and then it kind of like it sort of a, it just kind of. Like with a huge bang, it kind of shows up in the late, uh, or I guess, early 2010s. Is is change in air pollution in China normally distributed? Um, it it increases at a relatively consistent rate um, for a, for like, well, the last 20 years or so, um, 20 30 years. Um, but I mean, it just it rockets onto the public agenda around like 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a punctuated equilibrium story. Yes, it does. Uh, do, could you use Brooke and I were kind of thinking about this a few minutes ago. Could you use Change in air pollution as the same in the same way we use budget data to measure PET across systems. Um, potentially, yes. Um, there's uh, 
Uh, data availability is kind of a, an issue here. I mean, like the Chinese data does, I mean, satellite data itself for air pollution just doesn't go back that far. I mean, I, I guess it technically starts in the 90s, but it only starts getting good, um, like in the, the, the late 20 knots. Um, so we're kind of limited right now. But going forward, yes, there's a potential abuse for this data. It's interesting because, you know, we when you know we're so limited in budget data and we're limited to just a few specific types of systems, it'd be really cool to see just the PET store using these same data in, you know, across, you know, different varieties of authoritarianism, different, um, you know, different levels of, de- of development. And I think we could learn a lot that we haven't learned just from these. It's kind of cool. Um, I, I is is the Olympic story in, with air pollution, and maybe you can tell the, our listeners the story, which I'm referring, which we're all referring to, the the the, the decrease in, in in air pollution around the Olympics. Is that a PET story? Uh, no. So you're referring to like in uh, uh, 2008. I mean the. Um, the air pollution in Beijing, which is notoriously bad, I mean, suddenly got much better for a very short period of time. Um, I That was a very quick fix, basically. And I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, in fact, air pollution kind of got worse after that. I mean, so there, like, over the course of, of a year, um, it makes very little difference. Um, because like what we kind of see is that um, uh, when there's a lot of pressure for factories to kind of shut down in the very short term to make the, the skies pretty for the Olympics, um, that then they ramp up production afterwards to kind of make up for the lost quotas. So I mean, these things definitely happen in China. And, and I should mention that I'm using annualized data to kind of get rid of these kind of weird blips. Like there's um, there's a term um, like a APAC blue, referring to the, the APAC conference. And that, I mean, the, the authorities in Beijing will pressure all of the factories around there uh, to, to shut down when they have a conference so they have a nice blue sky for the photo. Um, and, and I don't, for the purposes of my project, I mean, that's not really responsiveness. I mean, that's just elites who want a good photo op for a very short period of time. Got it. Uh, Brooke? Mm-hmm. So transitioning to the U.S. paper, I'm a state and local person, so this paper is super exciting for personal reasons. Um, and I was really um, taken by your findings that at the state level, feedback is really driven by government action versus at the local level, which is driven by outcomes. And I, I was especially interested in your, I guess, in your model and your control variables that you use. So you control for economic output and a bunch of fixed effects for geography and region and things like this. Um, And I'm wondering if you found any difference in states and locations or regions that have a history of dealing with this type of air pollution, thinking of California's wildfires or Ohio and Pennsylvania like acid rain in the 70s. Is there a path dependence story with air pollution? Uh, yes, I mean the the source of power um, is is a very big one. I mean coal is terrible for the air, mm-hmm. um, but I mean investments and in, like where you're getting your power take time. Um, and I mean some areas are just like, they're lucky enough to be really conducive for like hydropower, or like, there are a lot of investments in nuclear power like decades ago. Um, and uh, then the geography matters a lot. Like if you have you know Los Angeles, I mean one of the reasons the air pollution is so bad is that it's, in, it's kind of a basin that kind of traps in all the, uh, the air pollution mm-hmm. from the, the cars. Um, and I mean, geography does change, but I mean, it takes a very long time. So yeah, I mean, there, there is a, a very strong, there is path dependence on kind of like where you're getting your power and these are long-term investments that kind of pay off over time. Uh, and then there's geography, which you're kind of stuck with. But does that path dependence change the politics? Um, that's a good question. Uh, to better understand that, we're going to need a longer, uh, we're going to need more time um, in the, the data. Um, I, I would suspect so, but I mean the, the public is reacting more to levels of change than they are to absolute levels. So I mean if, if things are 
bad just because of geography and where you're getting power. I mean, the public does kind of factor that in and kind of how they're and what they're expecting. But I mean, if things are getting worse, regardless of the baseline, the public becomes more concerned. So do you think that change is more evident in public levels of attention or or even in salience, like using Google or search engines in general to find this stuff in terms of local like locations with all these idiosyncrasies of LA being in a basin or Denver being in a basin to where you see that like brown tire on the mountains when the smog is bad versus at the state level to where they expect more like a national type of politics? Sorry, can you uh, uh, can you repeat your question, please? Um, yeah. Do you expect like this sort of um, this sort of like path dependence to come out in the idiosyncrasy of a location versus the state level, which is more like ideological politics that's reflective of national level discourse? So I, I think so. Your question is kind of getting at like what is the difference between like the, the local and the state mm-hmm. level, right? And so a big issue or. A, I think a, a key difference is what can you make of the things you observe around you, um, and at the state level, I mean, you you do have these kind of very noisy signals of like how well the state government is doing. Like, I mean, the there is some correlation with your local air pollution versus the state level air pollution, but that correlation is like extremely noisy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that I mean, uh, I think that that's a really key difference as far as like uh, how can you interpret what's around you and how can you evaluate the government based on that. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think of a, of a study, the Soroka and Vlezian paper on Canada on provincial politics, where people like the, the federalism system just kind of makes it difficult for people to know who to be mad at. So I'm wondering, like in, in terms of responsiveness, um, how does responsiveness change at the different levels of government? Is it all the same tactics or what does it look like? So you're saying, like, what does the public actually do when it becomes concerned? Yeah, what does the public do? And then also, what does the government do? Are there any differences in the responsiveness? Like in China, for example, they tell the factory owners to stop producing. The government authorities do, yes. Right. So what does it look like in levels of federalism, I guess? Um, so uh, in China, I mean, the public um, the public does at least implicitly threaten the government. I mean, and the, the government does keep track of like how concerned is the public because like they want to avoid civil unrest. I mean they so they put a lot of effort into kind of monitoring just like how angry is the public at various issues. Uh, and then they, they react preemptively and sometimes the public does protest or threaten to protest and government officials will act at least minimally to kind of avoid that. Um, in the US, I mean there are there are electoral incentives obviously, but I mean there is, I think, especially at the local level, there is some degree of what we kind of see in China. I mean no one wants a huge scandal on their hands. I mean, no one wants people shouting at them in their office. And I mean, people do do that kind of thing. I mean, Brooke, you're, you're, the, you're the expert on local politics. I mean, how, how effective is, is, you know, a city like Austin, realistically, a Democrat is probably not going to be uh, uh, electorally threatened. I mean, how much of an incentive is it just to not have people yelling at you to, to get, to, you know, to get it right? I imagine it's pretty high, especially considering most local governments are nonpartisan. So it doesn't matter really if they're Democrat or Republican. If there's a lot of smog and people's kids are, you know, showing physical effects, I'm sure that the incentive is pretty high for any local official. <laughs> and you think that's how local bureaucrats in China uh, act? Um, oh, oh, most definitely. Yeah, the, the uh, a, a huge um, 
uh, incentive built into their political system is avoiding uh, is avoiding unrest. I mean, that the regime needs to survive or that wants to survive. So I mean, uh, incentives or, uh, officials have very strong incentives to avoid even just the displays of uh, civil unrest. All right, so they're so, so they're being chased by a crocodile, right? And, and so they're running really fast because there's a crocodile behind them. Yes. Does that make them more? Uh, responsive or more effective at responding to public opinion than the United States government or or a, a, a democratic government? Or are there still things blocking them in an authoritarian government from being, are they just being responsive enough to stay out of the reach of the, of the alligator, of the crocodile, whatever, whatever the metaphor is, or are they, you know, um, uh, really good at it? So this is a really good question, one I'm, I am hoping to get to when I have a longer uh, time series. So this is kind of conjecture at this mm-hmm. point. But um, a, a major difference um, may be time horizon, uh, is that there's a very strong incentive uh, in, uh, for Chinese officials to make things better now for like, however long their term is. And usually they're in a region for just like you know, three or four years or so, and then they're, they're transferred somewhere else. Um, so that creates incentive to kind of make things better for the moment, but then, I mean, not uh, not to make longer-term investments to kind of uh, improve things. Um, in the U.S., I mean, that, that incentive may exist. Um, it, it's, um, but that's um, this is a question I'm kind of hoping to get to with uh, ongoing research. I, I mean, I've seen the PT literature, you know, kind of use the informational advantage versus institutional efficiency argument. Um, and and uh, for the most part, in the literature, the informational advantage always wins. Right? That that over the long term, you get a much more less efficient pattern of change in in Chinese government. So I'm wondering if if you get these kind of like really inefficient um, but big changes under China. So like, uh, you know, the Olympics is the example that, that comes to mind, but the, the, you know, the, the, the APAC blue sky, all the, the, those examples are like incredibly inefficient, right? If we're just going to shutter a factory for a week, that, that doesn't seem like the, you know, the, the best public policy in terms of, you know, for factory policy, um, but like short term solves your problem. Whereas in the United States, you know, you got to, you know, you, um, the the they might take a it might be less efficiency in acting, but they act better over the long run. Yeah, this is a very good question. I mean, a big, a major difference is that the the Chinese uh, government isn't constrained by laws in the same way that most uh, American political authorities are. So uh, the Chinese government can more easily kind of act in big dramatic ways. Like I mean, it can just kind of force people to relocate to build dams, for instance, whereas uh, without having to go through a lengthy legal. Uh, Process like in the U.S. Um, however, I, I do think that it's, I do think that when American authorities are motivated, I mean, they can make things happen. I, I, one of the, I, I strongly suspect one of the reasons why Chinese officials have acted so dramatically in recent years is just because the air pollution is so bad in China. I mean, if the air pollution were comparably bad in the U.S. and it has been in the past, um, although I don't have good data on, uh, that far back, um, I think that the U.S. government would find ways to act very dramatically. So the, the difference in dif- the difference between what the political systems are actually doing may not be quite as dramatic as uh, it may appear. Um, the, uh, I, saw, I saw an interesting paper at the Comparative Agendas Project uh, over, over the, the summer, and uh, they were comparing the Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping re- regimes, uh, and they're, they're kind of flavors of authoritarianism. You might probably a- uh, assume that the Hu Jintao regime is, is less authoritarian than the Xi Jinping regime. It's certainly less repressive. Um, but they actually showed a less efficient model under Hu Jintao, that he was essentially trying to protect the status quo, not, not upset the apple cart, and just kind of keep going. Um, is uh, and I think if most of your data is is Xi Jinping, but you, I think you have a little bit of, of both both regimes, right? Yes. Is there a change from regime to regime? 
Um, yes. Yeah, so given the limited data, I, I, I want to be careful about drawing any kind of definitive conclusions about these regimes. But um, at the end of uh, whose rain you have uh, that's when air pollution is just then becoming a really huge issue so uh, the uh, so in recent years under Xi Jinping more a lot more has been done about air pollution but uh, this is kind of as it has been as it uh, was um, they have a changeover just as the air pollution is kind of rocketing onto the the public agenda so I'd be very careful about sort of attributing it to the uh, the, the nature of uh, their their, uh, their administrations but can you draw comparisons then between the two leaders or between like the system in general then to say this is how leaders would act in an authoritarian or non-democratic um, setting instead of like this one president or this one leader acted in a certain way and someone reacted very differently to um, to public Say, to salience of an issue or public response of, uh, public opinion, excuse me, um, wouldn't that then strengthen your argument for this is just how it works in an authoritarian setting? I guess once you have more data. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's a possibility. I mean, so I think that a major, I mean, so this is conjecture, so I want to be very clear about that. I mean, I can't like impure. You do that all the time. It's yeah. good. <laughs> um, but uh, it so this is reasonable conjecture that I think I can later establish is that I think a major issue um, is uh, – um, or a major difference is which level of government is acting. So we've seen a lot more uh, effort at the, the national level in recent years in, in authoritarian China as the issues become bigger. And uh, But uh, this still was an issue going farther back. But I suspect that most of the issue was kind of being initiated more at the, the local level, kind of like less – there's less like actual strategy, but there still was a lot of government action. It was just more localized. Are you familiar with the anthro uh, anthropic principle in astronomy? Oh, yes. Okay. So the, the anthropic, anthropic principle for everybody who, has, who doesn't know is the, uh, the notion that um, uh, life can be very rare – but if a, a civilization that lives would only observe would, would only be able to observe a civilization that has life in it, uh, so the, this this is uh, essentially the the fallacy that that says that just because we're alive that doesn't mean that there's billions of other civilizations out there. We could be the only only civilization out there, um, and it wouldn't be statistically uh, weird. Uh, I think that's correct. Um, I'm wondering if there's an anthropic principle for authoritarian regimes. So if an authoritarian regime did not respond to uh, to public concerns. Would that regime be around still? Um, no, I, I mean all regimes have to, to some extent, satisfy public uh, to what the public wants. I mean, they may not do it very efficiently. They may not do it very well. They may not do it in all policy uh, areas. But every regime needs to kind of keep enough people happy enough, or at least not so angry, to stay in power. Oh, I, I agree. But I'm so. But we probably can't say that they all do, though, right? Because the ones that don't. Get revolt. There's a revolution, and they and they get they, they get deposed in favor of a regime that's either democratic or, or an authoritarian regime that may that does respond to public right. opinion. Um, I mean, maybe maybe there's some totalitarian regimes that don't. Um, but you know, I suspect. Rather, do you suspect if we could do this in North Korea, or whatever, some other real totalitarian country? Do you think there would actually be a responsiveness? Yes. Effect? Yes, I do. I, I don't think I don't think it responds for a, a, such a regime usually responds very well. But I mean, you have to keep at least a significant portion of the population happy. I mean, like I mean, even uh, the most authoritarian, uh, like a, 
centralized leader at least has to keep the security forces happy, right? So there, it may not be very I mean, what we would normally think of as good responsiveness, but there would be responsiveness of some kind. And if you were to go back, this would be selecting on the dependent variable, but if you were to go back and look at major major protests in authoritarian countries, do you think you would find that those follow a um, authoritarian regime that is not responding? So let's say before the Arab Spring, if you could go to the Arab Spring, would you, do you think you would find you you would find a failure to respond there? I'm sure. So I think that responsiveness to some extent is politics as normal, even in highly authoritarian regimes. I mean, protests can happen for all sorts of reasons. I mean, they can happen because people are very frustrated because I mean, maybe there is responsiveness, but it's just not enough. But it can also uh, be triggered because of responsiveness. I mean, people kind of see like, oh, we're getting a little bit of what we want. We want more. Um, so it's... My my study isn't attract isn't attached to any one strategy. I mean, the public uses a lot of strategies and it adapts, as does the government adapts. So, I mean, protest is one of those. But I don't want to uh, I don't want to give people the impression this is like the only thing. Even in authoritarian regimes, is kind of pushing the government. It seems more difficult for governments at the local level, and um, also in other sort of non democratic or what we consider, I guess, traditionally democratic, such as the American states, to almost prove to the public to sort of satiate their um, claims, right, that that um, this is a problem that needs immediate action. It seems like the state level can sort of get off scot-free in a way, right? Like if, if, the gov- if the people are responding to a government action, then the government can, the governor can put it in, in the annual state of the state speech, right? Like they can say, this is our new mandate and we're creating this new agency to deal with air pollution, but it seems like they might not actually have to do anything. It's interesting that like outcomes are more important in a, in a non-democratic slash local American setting um, because people need to tangibly see or breathe the change, whereas at the state level and in my mind also sort of at the national U.S. political rhetoric level, right, like they would have to put something in place and not necessarily have an outcome. I think that's a really interesting part of your story. Yeah, so that, that's a good um, question because the uh, you raise a really, really interesting issue here of uh, government action doesn't always work, right? I mean, even very well-intentioned policies, sometimes they just fail or they can even be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens then? Like, I mean, does so we know that the, the public is reacting to what the government is doing um, at the national level, not so much the outcomes. But I mean, what about when the outcomes are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, so I mean, in this issue area for the time period I'm looking at, I mean, I don't really, I can't really get at this issue yet, but there would be a learning process, I suspect, um, that if, if let's say, the, uh, the government's trying to address the economy, but everything it's doing is just making it worse, which is kind of what we saw like uh, you know, Europe early uh, Great Depression, uh, then eventually the public is going to kind of uh, adjust to that. Uh, I, I suspect that I mean, that they would um, eventually start reacting to the outcomes if they they learn if they begin to not trust what the government um, the government action that they're seeing. All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, we're going to wrap up real quick with our, our normal wrap up question. So, Ross, what should other people read if they're interested in this subject other than your own work? Uh, so. A really informative book, I think, is Susan Mettler's The Submerged State. I mean, a lot of ways I see my work as kind of the... Uh, Episode two of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, the inverse of that almost, because I'm looking at sort of like the, the, non, the non-submerged state, right? Mm-hmm. If, like the, if, it, if it's submerged, people are responding to the outcomes. If it's not submerged, people are responding to the government itself. So I, I really recommend that book. Yeah, and or you can also go read the listen to the podcast that we record with her on uh, the um, kind of her expanded version of that same work. Um, uh, uh, 
which which title I'm forgetting off the top of my head right now. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Ross is on the market this year, so please hire him. Brooke is not on the market this year. Thank you for joining me. Uh, and this has been your Policy Agendas podcast. <laughs>